Hi everyone and welcome to the Worldonomics podcast, brought to you by the UQES diversity team. My name is Eleanor and in this podcast we bring you interviews with guests to talk about the issues that matter. UQES would like to acknowledge both the Turrbal and Jagra nations, the traditional owners of this land and their ongoing custodianship of the land on which this podcast interview is taking place. We pay our respects to their elders and their descendants who continue cultural and spiritual connections to country. Additionally, we recognise their valuable contribution to both Australian and global society. Hello to everyone listening out there and welcome to the next episode of our UQ Economic Society Worldonomics podcast. Today we are very lucky to have with us Robin Barlow, who is a founding director of the economics consulting firm Nine Squared. Um, I'd love to hand over to Robin now to introduce himself. Uh, hi, Eleanor. Uh, I'm Robin Barlow. Um, I'm, as, as Eleanor said, a director at Nine Squared, um, which uh, is a consulting firm that's uh, been around for nine years now, actually, last week. It was our ninth birthday. Um, I've been a consultant for in economics now for ooh, uh, 14 years or so, and before that I was in the public sector for a long time. Um, yeah, that's that's me. Lovely. Now, usually we like to kick off the podcast with a bit of a icebreaker fun question. Um, so to kick us off, what is your favourite thing to do in Brisbane on the weekend when you're not at mm. work? Um, well, sometimes I am at work on the weekend, <laughs> uh, which is definitely not my favourite thing. It's a good question. I think um, I've got two answers to that question in two different time periods of my life. Yeah. If you asked me um, before I was a consultant... I would say it was uh, going for a rock climb, at rock climbing, um, either indoors or outdoors. And, uh, you know, Brisbane's such a great place for that because the kang- Kangaroo Point Cliffs. Yeah, definitely. I think it's the only city in the world that has an outdoor climbing gym that's free and in the middle of the CBD. And five minutes from the CBD. <laughs> um, uh, but I haven't done that for a while. And now you're more likely to find me um, doing a low and slow barbecue in the backyard. Very nice. My friends. Also taking advantage of the great climate. Yes, definitely. One of the perks of Brisbane. Um, Now, we're going to start off talking a bit about your university experience, Mm -hmm. which um, we know you studied at Griffith University and you studied economics. What directed you into this degree pathway coming straight out of high school? Um, Well, I didn't do it coming straight out of high school. In fact, uh, my first uh, foray into tertiary study after high school was art college um, at the Queensland College of Art. Um, And then I had the opportunity to go overseas for a while, um, which I did. And when I came back, a friend of mine uh, from school uh, was just finishing a degree at Griffith and she told me how great it was and I thought, well, I've got to do something. Um, And so I enrolled in that degree with no great um, understanding of what that degree was going to offer other than it did provide economics. Um, So I did a degree in modern Asian studies um, at Griffith, uh, I had done economics at school, uh, and yeah, it was a, it was an interesting degree because it was very much focused on Asia. Um, and the first year had a, a common first year, so you did everything, uh, all the all the sort of his, history and sociology and anthropology, politics and economics, and I was much more interested in those late, later two than the first lot. Um, so yeah, I focused on economics and politics at my time at, at Griffith. Um, I did honours in economics after my past degree. 
uh, at Griffith again in modern Asian studies, and it was to do with, uh, from memory, something was a long time ago. Um, it was to do with international uh, economics and, and international um, uh, trading blocks, in fact. Yeah. Uh, in terms of, you know, uh, the university experience, as I recall it from 30-odd years ago, was, you know, I, I loved university, in fact. Um, I would have stayed there if I could, um, but sometimes you have to leave and get a job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Do you think this degree has set you up strongly for your career? Has it sort of been relevant at different points in your career? Um, I would say it set me up in a few ways. It, it was certainly very... Um, uh, very strong in commu- on developing communication skills. And so there was a lot of writing of papers and a lot of oral um, presentation in terms of the, the assessment. Um, so there was that, which had definitely has stood me in good stead going forward. I've really learned how to write at university. Um, the, in terms of the, um, the content of economics, if you like, or the content of the degree. I think it's more important that uh, what you take from the from an economics degree is how to think. And um, so the things that... I don't think I've used any of the things I actually learned in terms of content, other than supply and demand, um, opportunity cost, and, uh, you know, comparative advantage, maybe, yeah. are the three things that you'll find that, as an economist, you will, you will come across over and over again, at least in a micro sense. Um, you know, I mean, I've never done any international economics ever in my career, but I don't think that matters. It's more about what, how an economics degree teaches you to think like an economist, and that's been invaluable. Whether I've been working as an economist or working in a policy area that um, isn't strictly economics, and you take an economic view of things and how they get put together, and know that there's, you know, you're making trade-offs all the time because the opportunity cost implies, irrespective of whether you're thinking. You're working yeah. as an economist, or whether you're, you know, working in something else. So, in that sense, I think the the um, training as an economist at university is valuable, yeah. or was for me anyway. Your first graduate job was at the Industry Commission in Canberra. Yes. Um, how did you get into that job, and could you speak to us about the experience, what it was like? Um, so I, um, so the Industry Commission is now the Productivity Commission. Um, the I was told when I was finishing my degree, at least I was told, don't bother applying for a job at the at Treasury, the RBA, or the Industry Commission, or ABEAR, um, because they never take Griffith graduates. And I thought, screw you. <laughs> so I applied for all of them. Uh, I had interviews with three of them, and um, I got job offers with Treasury and the Industry Commission and I decided to uh, go with the Industry Commission because it seemed to be doing more of what I was interested in in a micro sense rather than the sort of uh, macro uh, world that you could potentially get into in, in, at Treasury. Um, but, you know, each to his own. Uh, Treasury at the time were very much involved in the microeconomic reform agenda as was the Industry Commission. Anyway, for, for whatever reason, I went to the Industry Commission I think the, one of the reasons they offered me a job was because they had just employed um, a guy called Tor Hundlow, who was um, a lecturer at Griffith right. <laughs> as the first Green Commissioner. Um, and the first uh, uh, inquiry that he worked on, and also that I worked on 30-odd years ago, 
um, was an inquiry into the costs and benefits of reducing greenhouse gas emissions in Australia, a topic that obviously we are still talking about yeah. and not doing much about. <laughs> um, so that's how I got there. Uh, so I, I randomly applied and, and you know, did, had an interview and did all that sort of good stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not like today, though. There was no assessment centres. There's no testing. I literally turned up for an interview in the city. Um, they, we had a pleasant chat for half an hour and I got offered a job. Um, <laughs> no random grammar tests and kind of no, maths quick. No, none yeah. of that. Um, I did hear from people who, some of my um, uh, cohort, at graduate cohort, that who had jobs at um, Bear or who had interviews <laughs> at Bear that their uh, interview process involved um, a whiteboard, seven people on one side of a table and questions that you had to explain using the whiteboard and using the maths. So thank God that wasn't the interview <laughs> process because I never would have got in. Um, the RBA, like I'm, I'm not a macro person, I've never really, like I think there's a lot of interesting questions in macro, um, but I'm not really, um, never really understood it as I think most economists don't really understand macro. Um, when I had the interview with the RBA, they asked questions I didn't even understand what they were talking about. So um, I didn't get a job there. Um, but yeah, that's how I turned up at the Industry Commission and there was about 20 graduates. As it turned out, the Commission was a great place to start a career. Um, it was a little bit like going to university and getting paid for it. Um, they had, um, as I said, they, had 20, they took 20 or so graduates each year. They had 200 professional economists working there mm-hmm. out of a staff of 250. Um, and they did a lot of interesting things. Um, so when I worked there, as I said, I worked on the costs and benefits of reducing greenhouse gas emissions and my role was around, um, like I, I was writing appendices to the reports about the economics of international agreements and you know how the international whaling uh, agreements worked and those sorts of things, um, as well as commenting on uh, the whole um, Report my role at the commission. One of the area that I worked in the commission was called um, development branch, but most people refer to it as the thought police. And it was to their stated role was to to keep the other the inquiries honest and to make sure they were economically pure and you know towing the industry commission line. And so my role as a graduate was to turn up to these meetings, which might have had you know thirty people in there, uh, and really senior economists and you know mm. people had been there for 30 years and you know tell them they were wrong or <laughs> you know get them to explain to me why they had written something the way they did mm. um which can be it's a pretty challenging role yeah, when you're, i imagine like, that would be quite terrifying <laughs> when you're but that was the expectation and, and mm. like it was a very respectful workplace i'd say right. and so i never felt like i couldn't ask the question um, and that was, it was a like, shock full of smart people, you know? Yeah. Um, so I loved my time at the Commission. Mm. Um, but I came back to Queensland. I left the Commission after a couple of years when they were turning into the Productivity Commission and moving to Melbourne. And um, yeah, came back to Queensland for love, basically. Oh, wow. Mm. Lucky. <laughs> were there any particular projects that you worked on at the industry commission other than um the greenhouse um so i did greenhouse gases and that that took about a year yeah um intrastate aviation which probably got me a job in queensland with the department of transport um 
it did um, the branch I worked in was also responsible for doing the annual report, which unlike most annual reports, was really an opportunity for the commission or the commissioners to have their point of view about all sorts of things that they thought were wrong. Um, generally, uh, uh, you know, industry protection or productivity or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I worked on um, chapters of the report around industry assistance and research and development assistance mm-hmm. um, and sort of mapped all that out. I was only there for a couple of years, but it was a, you know, I think it was a great couple of years. And I would say it's one of the uh, um, things I always tell graduates or, you know, soon to be graduates is that, you know, if you get to Canberra and there's some places in Canberra that are really good if you want to be an economist. Mm. And I think the commission's one of them. Sounds like it. Sounds very interesting. Um, you've had a wide range of positions over the course of your career. A large chunk of this time spent with Queensland Transport and TransLink. Um, could you talk about this experience? How did you find working within the state government structure? Yeah. So uh, when I came back from Canberra, mm. um, I applied for you know I applied for some jobs in Canberra mm. uh, and got one at the Department of Transport and Main Roads at the time. Uh, it's gone through various name changes yeah, and it's sure. back to the Department of Transport and Main Roads. Um, you know there was no plan to do transport necessarily, but mm. that's basically the first job I got. Um, and I sort of ended up in a central policy area of the department. Again, very much like um, the experience at the commission where there was a a small number of very smart people who uh, got to work on probably the most interesting bits of policy or the policy agenda for the transport sector Mm. in Queensland. And so I was pretty lucky to turn up there. Um, After about 18 months there, uh, there was a review of public transport in this state and one of the guys who was initially at this central policy area was a member of the review team and he told my then boss that all I did was public transport anyway and he should be I should be down in the valley and you know I was going to be down there for three months and I was there for about 10 years <laughs> so there's lots of opportunities I guess in lots of different jobs in the state public sector and some are better than others I would say but what I found was that I always was in a sort of policy role or policy development or strategy role for a long time. Um, those areas and line departments can be very interesting. So the line department as opposed to central agencies like Treasury and Premiers. Um, they, there's a range of policy issues that applying an economic framework to, even though they might not necessarily be economic policy, is very useful. And so I worked a lot on um, things like taxi regulation and limousine regulation and bus regulation. Um, you know, I mean, taxis is, is, a, is a classic example of where a lot of economists have a view about taxi regulation and whether it's good or bad. But when you actually have to deal with all the stakeholders and that as well as sort of have a, have a policy prescription that, with, that is constrained by the politics, um, you know, you have to sort of say, well, you know, if you are going to do this, then this is the best way of doing it from an economics point of view, as opposed to saying, well, we should just get rid of all regulation because that often is not a politically feasible, feasible you know, <laughs> argument. One of the things I ended up doing in that job in, when I was working in the passenger transport space 
before TransLink was the National Competition Policy Review of Public Transport Legislation. And so I had a very deep dive into taxi regulation and bus regulation and limousine regulation in particular. Um, and, you know, I had a whole team of people working with me on that. Mm. Super interesting, you know, period of my life and super interesting project as a project. After that, I then sort of got asked to... Um, well, actually, what I got asked or well, what I got told was um, that... Integrated, this integrated ticketing project is never going to work. Um, tell me what you think we should do. So I wrote a, I thought about it for a while, and I wrote a you know, two-page memo and sent it to my boss's boss, and I got a thing back saying, this is good, what are the next steps? And the next steps it turned out to be was that I was working on a project that eventually became TransLink. Um, so it, I think the, the, the lesson from that period of my life is that you should never say no to uh, some of these opportunities and you never know where it's going to lead you um, because I could have easily been you know, doing something much less interesting than that. Mm. Um, yeah, so that's how Translink started. I started working on Translink around 2000 and I finished working there in 2009, yeah. either in or on Translink. Um, yeah, that was a great uh, time of my life as well. In fact, very interesting. Again, not really economics, but it was, again, a series of policy issues to be solved that required, or that didn't require, but it benefited, I think, from having an economic framework applied to it. Mm. So I ended up being the, uh, for a long time, uh, effectively the CFO at TransLink. Right. Um, And I dealt with a whole range of issues. Um, around strategy and performance management and the financial management, which mm. luckily I had a good team because I'm not an accountant. Um, but also a whole range of projects within that. So things like um, how, do we, how do you contract bus contracts, for instance, or rail contracts mm. for um, long periods of time and how does that differ over time? Now, as it turns out, that is exactly the same regulatory structure also the same economic structure as how do you um, regulate access to assets that uh, say, for instance, a coal network, right? Yeah. Um, Just in a different context. In a different context. Yeah. And so you, you can, there's things to take from the economic frameworks that you can apply around valuation and pricing, around incentive structures, which is what I did. Mm. pretty much can you give an example years. of that something that you specifically put into place I think is really interesting actually so in in the so in bus contracts mm. for instance so it used to be the case that um, the way bus regulation worked and, and all buses in, in Queensland all public transport in Queensland is subsidised yeah right so quite extensively about 75% all public transport is funded by government mm. in in the bus world that used to be, here's a chunk of money. We want you to run services. You design them and you do whatever you like. And um, you, you, there's some... By private bus companies. Private bus companies. Right. And, and the business city council ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, within an area, you'll have an exclusive right to do this. Um, now, that works fine if you're in Townsville and you, there's one bus company. It doesn't <laughs> work so good if you want the buses to run to the train line or, you know, there's like 16 bus companies in southeast Queensland. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it doesn't work if you want to say, well, actually, we're going to set the fares now. Yeah. Um, so thanks for your time, but we're setting the fares and um, we'll pay you to run up and down a street, which is what this is how the change from pre-translate to translate allowed integrated ticketing to work. Um, and then there's questions about, well, what does that mean for my risk profile as the funder? I'm now mm-hmm. paying a bus operator to run up and down the street. Um, I'm setting the fares. They can't just decide when to put services on. Mm. Um, they, you know, change the whole contracting framework. And then there's a question about, well, how do you price that bus company or how do you price those services that you're getting? Mm. Now, to some extent, you'd say um, it's reasonably simple, right? So a bus, you need so many bus drivers, a bus driver costs whatever they cost yeah, an, yeah. an hour and you need so many hours. But then the bus companies also pay for the buses and they pay for the depots. Mm-hmm. And there's that whole asset issue about, well, what's that, what's that asset worth? How do you price that asset going forward? Um, what happens if interest rates rises or goes down or sideways? Um, how, does, how do you deal with rent and improvements? And that whole space of, of the pricing of assets in the bus world, mm-hmm. same with rail, um, as I said, it's very much akin to how do you price asset assets for access arrangements in, in the coal network. And so we did it exactly the same way. There's a building block approach to pricing where we've sort of built up the, this is the assets, these are, you know, every bus, every bus asset and every, you know, depot and whatever else that gets all built up and they all get, um, you know, they were all assessed in terms of the value at the time and then there was an interest rate discussion and, you mm-hmm. know, what's the weighted average cost of capital etc etc so all those things are about bringing that economic lens into something to solve a problem about pricing right um then there's a whole issue around incentive structures Mm. so once you've said to the bus company well we just want you to run up and down the street do it on time Mm. uh be nice to the passengers um the incentive for a bus company is not to pick up any passengers at all because it keeps the buses clean keeps them on time clearly that is not the answer that you were looking for as mm. a as a provider provider right mm. as a integrator of the transport system so then you have to start looking at well, what are the incentives that we need to put in place what are the incentive structures that will en- encourage and incentivize a bus operator to actually stop be nice to the passengers while maintaining that that schedule again you know economists are uniquely placed to think about incentive structures right and that's mm. that's pretty much what you think about a lot yeah and so it's bringing that um you know, I think they're two good examples of where, you know, you apply an economic lens to a policy issue that has real-world outcomes in, in very short periods of time. Um, in terms of taxis, it was a similar thing. So this didn't actually get implemented because governments changed and whatever else. Yeah. But um, as it turns out, the taxi industry, um, the way taxis were regulated today, whether they, well, let's say before Uber, the way they were regulated was um, they had a lot, you had to buy a licence to be a taxi and licenses in, in Brisbane were about, when I was involved, around $250,000 a licence. And then there was this complicated set of arrangements that licence holders would have where they would either run a taxi themselves and drive it themselves, or they might lease the licence to a taxi company, or they might um, own a licence in a car, but then lease that to a driver. Mm-hmm. You know, taxi licensing generally is seen as a bad thing by economists. Um, now, my view is there may be some arguments about whether it is a good thing or a bad thing because once you take space and time 
into account. Mm. Um, there are other things that flow from that that you know may create arguments to have taxi regulation. Nevertheless, um, when you look at the history of taxi regulation, uh, it's all very much driven by the technology that's used to call a taxi. Mm. Right? So in before radios, um, you used to just hail a taxi on the street and there was a set of regulation around that. Mm. And then they had radios and the creation of booking companies, so the yellow cabs of the world or one three cabs or whatever. Mm. Um, and there was a set of... Uh, the regulation takes a while to catch up. Right? So after about 40 years of that, there was new regulation that actually put some onus on the booking companies to do something. Um, in my view at the time, when we were looking at taxi regulation, was, you know what, um, the communication technology is changing again. Um, eventually people are just, you know, start phones or whatever else, people are just going to be able to, you know, ring up, book a cab anywhere. We didn't have, you know, touch phones at that point, but, yeah. you know, or smartphones. Um, but people will be able to do it from anywhere. Booking companies will become much more important and the people who are driving the taxi will become less important. Sounds awful, but, you know, they'll be less yeah. important in the, in the economic context. And, and, in fact, all those sort of control sits with the booking company. In, in mm. the 2000s, that's where the, the control sat. Mm. Um, so we had actually convinced the booking companies that this was actually going to happen and that what needed to happen was... Um, so we designed this whole economic policy around, well, let's, you know, transition the licences into the booking companies and then the booking companies would have much more control over their own destiny. Yeah, um, so that got... Um, that was all a bit too hard in a policy sense, in a politics yeah. politics sense. Um, but as it happens, that's exactly what happened with Uber. Mm. So Uber comes in, um, does exactly that. They they are effectively contracting drivers to drive cars, in a, you know, using the technology, the communications technology, mm. and providing a, a better service than the taxi industry. Mm. Um, so yeah, that was a missed opportunity for both the government, I think, and the taxi industry, because yeah. they would have been much better placed. Thank you for listening to part one of our interview with Robin Barlow. We'll see you next week for part two.